Hello, everyone. How are you? Great to see you all. Merry Christmas to you all. I hope you have the most blessed Christmas ever. Um, we have a special guest with us today, uh, and uh, one of the great talents in all of America, I could say that, really, in terms of uh, his uh, musical talent. Uh, and just in case people, you don't really know everything about him, this is one of the most humble men I've ever met in my life. Uh, a true humble person uh, who sold out to Jesus. And when you recognize that this guy uh, has the world's record of singing more than 3,000 performances, 3,000 performances of Les Miserables, the leading role of Jean Valjean, uh, all over the world, uh, nobody else could ever do anything like that. Mark McVeigh's with us. Why don't you give him a welcome, will you? And so I hope that you get a chance that you've already seen the show and you've seen what he's done, and if not, try to get a ticket somehow for 4 o'clock or 7 o'clock, because I plan to be there tonight at 7, so it should be special. I wanted to do something a little different today to prepare you for the Christmas holidays. You will be seated at a Christmas table at some point, and I'm sure that a discussion is going to take place uh, about religion, and somebody is going to say something about Jesus, and most likely it will be wrong. Uh, and so I wanted to prepare you with an apologetic to be able to discuss all of the prophecies that relate to Jesus. It's extraordinary. There's more than 300. I didn't give you 300. I gave some of the more poignant ones. But you can keep this in your Bible. Uh, and so I thought it would be a good thing to do before uh, the Christmas break. And if you look at the outline, specifically uh, in point 18, uh, I'm going to start there. Actually, I'm going to start on something that's not in the outline. One of the very earliest prophecies about Jesus found in Genesis chapter 3. So if you want to know how far back in time you can see God's plan for us to have a Savior and what that Savior will do, look at Genesis chapter 3. This is right after uh, Satan has tempted Eve. She has fallen along with Adam. And so God is now confronting the woman and Satan. And so if you read in verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Her offspring, her offspring would crush the head of Satan, effectively killing Satan, destroying Satan. And we know her offspring is Jesus Christ. That's what that was referring to. And God then says to Satan, you will strike his heel. Meaning what? Meaning you, Satan, will inflict damage. You will inflict pain. You will inflict suffering. And we know that from studying the life of Jesus that, that Satan did that. Um, and, and most poignantly on the cross. And so you see this very early prophecy about what will take place, what God will do with Jesus Christ coming to this world. And so when you recognize that this is at the Garden of Eden, how many thousands and thousands of years back in history 
uh, that prophecy took place, you get a sense for how God has foreordained Jesus Christ as the Savior of this world. Now, in point 18 of the outline, I give you a, a, a part of biblical prophecy that is often not referenced, uh, but it's, again, astonishingly accurate, and you need to know about it. And this really arises out of the vision that Daniel received when he was in captivity in Babylon. Now, you know that Daniel was taken captive uh, when Israel was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians came in probably around 570, 580 B.C., took, took uh, all the uh, t- most intelligent Jewish boys, took them out of Israel, brought them back into captivity in Babylon. That included Daniel, who was a very young man, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who obviously uh, attained later fame uh, at the fiery furnace. And so now they come into Babylon, and they're being trained. And when Daniel came into Babylon, the Bible tells us that Daniel was put in charge of the Magi. Now, the Magi were effectively the wise men, the intellectuals, the scholars of Babylon. And so Daniel was put in charge of them. And so Daniel now, uh, somewhere in the 500s, probably 550 or so, gets this vision. Gabriel appears to him, and he gets this vision about what will take place in the future. Uh, And this is an an amazing uh, vision. Uh, And uh, effectively what it is, is Daniel is told, if you turn, let's look at it. Let's take a look at Daniel chapter 9. Let's look at verse uh, 20. Six. Actually, we'll start with 25. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, and the anointed one should be capitalized in your Bible. That's referring to Jesus. The ruler comes. There will be seven sevens. Now, understand this. Seven sevens means uh, a seven is considered seven years long. So seven sevens is translated as 49 years. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, which I think comes out to about 430 or 40 years. Uh, It will be rebuilt with streets, uh, a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, first you have the first seven, and then you're going to have the 62 sevens, that comes out to about 490 years, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, the people of the ruler will come, who, who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Meaning what? Meaning the whole, the whole prophecy indicates that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And so now you get this time period, all right? You get this time period somewhere around 500 years. Now, the question is, where does it begin? The Bible's not specific. It says the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem. Well, if you start the countdown from when they went back and started to rebuild the temple itself, that would bring you pretty close to the birth of Jesus Christ. If you start the countdown on when they re, where they actually rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, that would bring you pretty much to Palm Sunday. How do you like that? Pretty much to Palm Sunday. So what's going on? What's going on is that Daniel gave this uh, uh, prophecy. He then gives it to the Magi. The Magi study the prophecy for five 
hundred years. They're in, they're in Babylon studying the prophecy, go, reflecting on it, translating it, trying to understand and get their hands around what it truly means. And so these, these were men who were stargazers. They looked up at the heavens and looked and noticed the firmament, noticed the movements of planets uh, within the solar system. So even as they knew, even as they knew that something incredible, the Messiah would come somewhere around 500 years, they began to be prepared. Now, what's interesting is that the Jewish people themselves were not taught the prophecies. So from about the year 350 B.C. on, no Jew really understood the prophecies. The rabbis really failed to do this. So the Magi, here they are, effectively in Babylon, in modern-day Iraq. Babylon was taken over by Persia. There they are, sitting there, studying the prophecies. And now the question becomes, why look for a star? Why look for a star? Well, look at Numbers 24. And I want, I'm showing you this to show you how God works. Why look for a star? Well, the Bible told them to look for a star. Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered, and so on and so forth. But uh, effectively, a ruler, a ruler uh, will come out of the house of Jacob as a star. So, you know the prophecy 500 years, something miraculous is going to happen. Now the question is, uh, how do I look? I look up in the heavens for some astronomical sign. A star is seen, and I don't precisely know how that star works. I've seen some, some explanations of it, uh, some very, very fine scientific explanations. It could have been a comet, all right? Uh, but whatever it was, it was something that they noted that was outside the norm of the heavens. And so here they are being prepared, ready, reading the Bible, studying the prophecy. Now they look up, now they see the star, and they follow the star. And you know the story. They follow it right into Jerusalem. As they go into Jerusalem, they lose the star. So they go to see Herod. Uh, and they tell Herod the whole story uh, that, that they believe a Messiah has been born, a king has been born. Well, Herod immediately notifies his wise, his, his own uh, confidants and say, where is this? I never heard anything about this. And they consult the Bible and they say to him, it's going to take place in Bethlehem. How do you like that? It's going to take place in Bethlehem. And that is one of the prophecies that I've given you that, that the uh, Messiah will come out of, heaven, out of Bethlehem. And well, he tells the uh, Magi to, that it will probably be in heaven. Go there and let him know, come back, when they find the uh, boy because he wants to go and worship with them, which you know is a flat-out lie. He wants to go and kill him. Uh, and they do not come back, and Herod will go and kill all of the two-year-olds and under in Bethlehem, a tr terrible tragedy. But you see the idea of prophecy about Jesus. You see it from the very earliest days. And so I wanted to give you this so that you'd be prepared to have a discussion. Look at Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. 
Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, this is a prophecy that would be uh, given somewhere about 700 years before Christ. And uh, I want you to understand that that translation, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, is also translated as from eternity. Okay? From eternity. So you see this passage where Bethlehem has been denominated as the home of the Messiah. You ought to know that Bethlehem was effectively a truck stop. It was a very tiny place. There would be nothing that would ever give your attention uh, as to that being a very specialized place, and that is where God, God raised uh, Jesus out of. Incredible story. Look at Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is translated as God is with us. So if you saw that, you would understand that here's the sign that God will give you of the Messiah. A virgin will conceive. Well, you would think that's a pretty significant sign. A virgin is going, to, is going to conceive. Now, this prophecy was written again about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Now, this is the angel speaking to Joseph. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Joseph, in a dream, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Okay, And we just said what the, what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 23, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what I want you to notice is, now here Matthew was the disciple. He's writing this. This passage is probably written about eight to ten years after Jesus expired on the cross. And you see Matthew, I'm sure, spoke with Mary, got a firsthand account from Mary as to what took place. And you see how they were tying everything together, what they realized that Jesus said basically all of the prophecies had come from about as to Jesus. Now tying it all together and saying, yes, Mary, you were a virgin. You conceived the seed from the Holy Spirit. And yes, this is exactly what Isaiah said. It all comes together. I read, I read some statistical analysis that if you took just seven of the prophecies, just seven, and, and calculated what would the odds be of all seven of them coming together, they said, uh, as I recall this, that a statistician said you would take uh, silver dollars and cover the entire state of Texas to a level of two feet and put one dot on one of the silver dollars, and you then, being dropped down somewhere in Texas, going and able to pick up the silver dollar with the dot on it. That's the statistical chance that this could all happen by accident. This didn't happen by accident. That's the point. 
This was not by accident. This was all preconceived before the very foundation of the universe. It was actually at the point where God began to create that, it, that, that, um, that they decided that Jesus Christ would be the Savior for mankind. God knew that mankind would fall. He knew because he gave them free will. And within the concept of free will is the ability to accept and the ability to reject. And I told you often that God looks at you in his hands as he's creating you and at that moment sees what you will do with Jesus. And he knows which ones will accept Jesus and which ones will reject Jesus. Did God foreordain those of you that rejected? No. But it's in his foreknowledge of free will. Let's understand this. This is the concept of free will. Uh, that's why be very careful when you hear people throw around the word elect. All right? And look, I love our, our, our brethren that are in Reformed churches. But we are not Reformed theologians. Because I can't translate John 3.16 to say that God has preordained those who will fall in sin. I reject that. I read the entire Bible to tell me that God gave me free will. And he did it from the time. But the fact that he's God and knows what you're going to do, even as he's holding the molecules that are you, is foreknowledge. Okay? That's foreknowledge. And let's understand this. Um, and so this is important to see it, and it's even, to me, even borne out even more poignantly as, as I read these, these great, great prophecies. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. This one is Moses, and God's speaking to Moses to let him know that there will someday be one greater than Moses. 18, uh, look at verse 15. And this is Moses speaking to his people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Um, and, and so the point of this is that God spoke to Moses and said, tell the Jewish people, tell your people that there will be one day a greater prophet raised up from among your own kindred, a fellow Jew. And, and I want you to recognize that the first century Jew understood that prophecy. Look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 40. On hearing his words, and that's Jesus, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem? They didn't really know the full story, did they? The town where David lived. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Isn't that extraordinary? That even back then, they actually had their hands on the very prophecy but kind of were blinded because all they thought about was Galilee, not really studying the backstory, which was Bethlehem. Which was Bethlehem. But you're going to see that, that we understand from Scripture that God really hardened the heart and darkened the eyes of the Jewish elite, the religious leaders. 
And so even in that time, because they had rejected Jesus, God says, as to the leadership, you rejected him, that's where you want to go, now I'm closing your eyes. But never as to the individual Jewish people, never. Um, and so you see this incredible prophecy. Now, there was a prophecy that that's, uh, Jesus, the Messiah, would be tempted uh, by Satan. Turn to Psalm 91. Think how smart you're going to be at Christmas. Pass me a turkey leg. Are you aware of this prophecy? They're going to just look at you and go, wow, you people are doing postgraduate work. That's great. Psalm 91. This is 1,000 years before Christ will be born. Psalm 91, verse 10. Then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the servant. And so what you see here uh, is God promising to protect within his time period, the Messiah, all right? Now, the question becomes, the question becomes, does Satan know the Bible? And the answer is, you better believe it. You better believe it. Now, he has not submitted his heart in obedience to God, but he knows the words. He knows the prophecies. Now turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. This is Jesus now out in the wilderness, being tempted after 40 days of not eating or drinking. He's out there. His body is wasted. He's physically exhausted, and Satan comes to tempt him. This would be this, Satan's opportune time to knock the Messiah down, uh, bankrupt God's plan to save humanity. This is exactly what Satan would want. Look at verse 5 here uh, as you see Satan using Scripture to tempt God himself, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jesus, in Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Can you imagine? And by the way, I want you to reflect on the, on the power of Satan. He actually picked Jesus up and brought him there. I mean, it's an astonishing thing. I don't understand the whole thing myself, but clearly you're seeing a, a creature with, with power and brings him to the temple to the highest point. And then he says this, if you are the son of God. How's that for a temptation? If, if, because I don't think you are. But if you really are the son of God, throw yourself down off the temple at this highest point, for it is written, and now what does he cite? He cites Psalm 91. He knows Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now put yourself in Jesus' hands in terms of, and, and, and reflect on Jesus. You're exhausted. You're mentally exhausted. You're physically exhausted. Now you're coming face to face with Satan. How easy would it be to just say, yeah, you want to see who I am? Here I am, watch. And he throws himself off the temple and the angels would hold him up and, and keep him. I mean, really, honestly, reflect on that. Then now reflect on what it takes not to do that when you had the power to do it. You, you understand that? You know, really reserving the power because it would, be un, it, would, it would be a sin against God to step out and do that 
when, when the scripture says, in your ways, it's not in your ways to do that. It's not happening by accident. You would be giving in to Satan. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord God, your Lord your God, to the test. Don't go testing God. Don't go testing God. And that's a lesson for us today. Don't make these uh, statements before God. You know, God, if you do X, Y, and Z for me, I'll become a monk. <laughs> you understand? Don't go doing that because you're testing God. All right? These, these equivocations. Uh, you give me something in my right hand, God, I'll give you something in my left hand. And you, and you understand that. Well, what does this mean? It means that Satan knows the Bible. So let's understand that. We are dealing with the most crafty, created creature of all time. Right? And, and so you see it. Just think what it, what it was for him to get one-third of the angels to follow him. One-third of the angels followed Satan and became demons. Uh, and so what, what an amazing uh, prophecy as you see this. Now, again, what some of the prophecies? Well, one of the prophecies says that uh, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem triumphantly. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, toward the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah is a very prophetic book. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. This is written 520 B.C. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having a salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus, according to this prophecy, more than 500 years before he's born, is going to go into Jerusalem uh, at the end in triumph, on a young foal, a colt. Now, let's turn to Matthew 21, verse 8. Actually, start with verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was written through the prophets. And here's, the again, the recitation from Zechariah right there. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd gathered their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna is the son of, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, here you have the fulfillment of the prophecy made 520 years before. Now, my daughter-in-law teaches a fifth grade class in a religious school. And she was going over these prophecies last week. I had given her copies of what I'd written for you. And in the course of teaching it, one smart fifth grader said the following. Well, wait a minute, uh, Mrs. Garippa, wait a minute. Isn't it possible that Jesus knew that prophecy? And so he purposely got the cult just to make it look like the prophecy was being fulfilled. Smart little kid, 
right? Smart little kid. But here's the deal. Did Jesus know the owner of the colt would gratefully give it up? Did he know that? Did Jesus know all these other prophecies that we're going to have? That, that, that he, you know, he couldn't possibly fulfill those prophecies relating to the crucifixion or the prophecies relating to, to the 30 pieces of silver, which you're going to hear. So to think that Jesus basically backtracked himself in order to make him look like the Messiah of the Old Testament completely misses the point as an, and is an absolute obs, obfuscation. All right, so, uh, and she answered that, and the kid accepted that, which was good. Uh, look at Isaiah 53. Turn to Isaiah 53, one of the great passages in Scripture of, of prophecy. Isaiah 53. Look at verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And let me stop and tell you that, that that's borne out. There's nothing in any of the stories about Jesus that says that he had some kind of charismatic uh, face or physiognomy. There was nothing physically about Jesus that would make you think that this guy is the son of God. It was not like the, the figure of Saul, who was six foot seven, the tallest man in Israel. Yeah, that's the guy we want. We want him to be king. No, Jesus had nothing at all special about his face or his body. He was a typical uh, Semitic man during that period of time. And look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He would be despised and rejected by his own. Now, if you're writing a prophecy about the Messiah, are you going to write about your Messiah? That he's going to be despised and rejected by his people? Or are you going to say, oh, when he comes, oh, when he comes, he is going to be raised up and affirmed and anointed. No, but you understand how God is writing the story in a very different way than we would have written it and understand this. And so you see this, uh, rejected by his own. Uh, look at Psalm 41. Psalm 41, verse 9. Verse 9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. In other words, this is again another prophetic verse speaking about the Messiah, that you're going to be betrayed by someone who would have been a close friend, a disciple, someone who was right there with you, who would do that. Um, and so one of his own followers. Then look at Zechariah again, chapter 11. Turn back to Zechariah 11. Look at verse 12. And, and, and this whole passage is so special because in this passage, this is a prophetic passage speaking about what Jesus will be. Jesus will come and will replace the bad shepherds. And if you read this along with me on verse 4, this is what the Lord my God says. Pasture the flock marked for slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. In other words, these are shepherds who are basically failing the people. They are leaders who are failing the people. All right? And those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them, for I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, 
declares the Lord. I will hand everyone over to their neighbor and as king. They will oppress the land and I will not rescue them from their hands. So I pastured the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. And now it goes into the first hand speaking of Jesus himself right now, who comes and replaces the bad shepherds. All right? All right? And then it says, Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union, and I pastured the flock. In one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. He replaced all those whose heart was not right, who were improperly leading the people, who were feathering their own nest and not doing what had to be done under the hand of God. The flock detested me. The flock detested me. And I grew weary of them, and I said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day. And so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. Now listen to this as we end on this. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Meaning what? Meaning that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Um, and, and I want you to know that this is exactly what happened. Turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but, but not during the feast. Uh, let me see if that's the verse that I wanted. Uh, I think that's not right. 14, thank you, scholars. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. Folks, you understand how God preordained and preorchestrated the whole prophecy relating to Jesus. This is not an accident. We do not serve a God who is accidentally giving us the Savior of the world. We are serving a creator that from the very foundation of the world put this together, knowing we would need a Savior, that Jesus Christ would be the Savior. He would be the calling card. He determined which, he knew ahead of time, those of you who would accept him and those of you who would reject him. He didn't foreordain any of you to fall. He gave you all free choice. And this is the message you need to deliver at the Christmas table because one of your relatives is going to say something stupid. <laughs> All right? And you are going to be able to step forward in the kindest, most gentle way and say, well, have you ever studied this? I give you Exhibit A. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for our spiritual family. Lord, we love them. We love each other. We're so blessed that you brought us together. Father, I ask you that this lesson resonate in our hearts. And I ask you that you touch us so that we have an opportunity to speak, that we have the courage now, Lord, the courage to say what you want us to say and continue to let this resonate and grow in our hearts. Lord, I pray that our people will have the most blessed Christmas ever and that they will constantly reflect on the gift that you gave us. 
Lord, we put all of this before you and ask everything in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas.